After 40 years of making music magic, The Cure was finally inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It was Trent Reznor of the Nine Inch Nails who inducted the band, and he was able to coin this phrase, the most excellent rock band the world has ever known. A new album of the tour is in the works along with a new book written by Christian Gerard called The Cure FAQ. All that is left to know about the most heartbreakingly excellent rock band the world has ever known. Available everywhere October 15, 2021. Welcome to Something Came From Baltimore. I'm your host, Tom Galker. In this episode, we're chatting with Christian Gerard about the book. And then we will count down our favorite Cure songs. The Cure's catalog is so vast that between both of us, we found 20 different songs to chat about. Something Came From Baltimore had Christian Gerard on the show September 30th, 2018, where he reviewed his Pop Matters article as he counted down the top 10 alternative songs from the 80s. He is back today via Zoom all the way from Minnesota to talk about his new project, The Cure FAQ. Christian Gerard, welcome to Something Came From Baltimore. Uh, thanks for having me. It's great to be here with you again. Yeah, we talked about a couple years ago where you were counting down the top 10 uh, coolest 80 songs. Now we're back again, but you now created a book that's called The Cure FAQ. All that is left to know about the most heartbreakingly excellent rock band the world has ever known. And it's released on 1015. So just by the title, the most heartbreakingly excellent rock band. So this isn't a scathing <laughs> tell-all book where uh, you're really digging in the dirt, are you? No, not at all. I'm not really interested so much in the personal lives of the band members. I mean, we delve into that a little bit. But it's, it's about the music. The music is what the book is about, and that's what the focus is on. When did you fall in love with The Cure? Really, the first exposure I had to The Cure was when I saw the video for Just Like Heaven on MTV, which would have been 1987, um, the Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me album. It just hit me right away what a cool song that was. And so I went out and bought the cassette. I sat down and listened to it all the way through, read the lyrics. You know, I remember the day very vividly. And that was my first intro to the band. And then I had a classmate in junior high who his older brother, you know, was kind of the music guru and would pass on stuff to him. He made me a dub cassette copy of the Standing on a Beach um, singles collection along with the B-sides. And that was it. Those two combined, that really just, you know, that, that, that's all it took. Now that, you know, 40 years have passed, what is the emotional connection or what is the the thread that keeps you so excited about the band to this day? Well, you know, they've really slowed down in terms of studio material. It's it's just the songs, they take you back to a place in time. You know, they, they speak to the listener on multiple different levels. And there's so much to explore. The catalog is so large. You're always hearing new things and perceiving new thoughts about music. Um, Robert Smith is a brilliant, brilliant songwriter and there's just a lot, it, it just, there's enough to keep you going, you know, all these years later. Yeah, when we talk about phases of this band, you may correct me and if, if I know that there's Cure fans, obviously are gonna click onto this, who wanna listen to us have a conversation about it. What I liked about this band is that they were able to reinvent themselves through the years. And I think yeah. when you do that, you you gain an additional audience and they, I don't think they turned off, they stayed with them. But I looked at them as, as a, a, like a four prong 
phase of this band where they started out as, as very new wave, very similar like to Gang of Four. And then they yeah, went yeah. industrial, like more like ministry. And I would say that their their most successful time period was more like arena rock on the lines of like NXS and Smashing Pumpkins. And then the last 20 years is just a touring band where they're basically giving you a three plus hour show every time. Does that seem about right? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think that that's a good way of looking at it. They certainly had that sort of post-punk Gang of Four type style in the early days, the first couple albums. And then I don't know if industrial, I mean, you could consider um, industrial, the pornography album. It's definitely got um, a vast sound to it. And then the pop era came right after that. They did a sharp left turn. That was one of the most pivotal moments actually in their development when they switched from that industrial heavy goth sound on pornography in 1982 to that pop, synth pop, let's go to bed singles that they put out um, only six months later. That was the change that really made everything possible for The Cure because then their umbrella was so widened that they could do anything and they did anything from that point forward. That was their big pop phase up through disintegration. And then you're right. They became sort of the stadium rock through the late 80s, early 90s. Their last studio album was 12 years ago. So they, they are touring bands these days. Um, they have a new studio album um, that's in the can, supposed, supposed to be in the can and ready to be released. But, you know, no word on that just yet. But, yeah, I would say that that's an accurate just breakdown. Robert Smith is the lead singer. Obviously, he plays guitar, and he is, I think, the, the bread and butter of what this band's all about. When you love The Cure, you have to kind of buy into what Robert Smith is presenting. You know, uh, it's funny because he was goth-looking back in the 80s, which was blowing people's minds, but that is very common today, the look. But, you know, he was yeah. teetering around, the I call it the sunken place, now that we have a name for it where either the lyrics were depressing or the music was depressing to put you in that depression state. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, the word suicide is not too far from the lips of some of these songs that were very, like, kind of, not I can't say self-loathing, but they were very, very intense in their imagery. You link them to the Smiths, I guess, at that time period of bands that were were really tapping into young people's vulnerabilities and emotions and fears and and um alienation and uh, they they did it in a way that i think feels like a friend you know like that where okay these people understand who i am yeah you know that's exactly right and they speak to things in feelings and emotions that you know adolescents in particular and those who have sort of considered themselves outsiders don't fit into the mainstream. They speak in terms that they hadn't really heard before from pop music or rock music. And there is an element of self-loathing to some of the, you know, to some of the stuff in particular, the pornography record, it's definitely self-loathing. And it's interesting that you mentioned the Smiths because they sort of tackle some of the same things, but in such a very different way, you know, it was sort of the mordant humor and sort of the, uh, you know, the rise cynicism and so forth with, with Morrissey. With Robert Smith, you just have very sort of straight from the heart, you know. It's very sincere, and it's just what he felt at the time. 
Um, and but he was, you know, he would always say that he was never suicidal, and you know, those bleak songs didn't really represent who he was as a person, as a complete person. It was just what he was able to express at that time, and I think that's another reason why he did such a sharp left turn with the pop stuff, um, because he was not satisfied with only showing that part of his personality, and you know, it really opened him up to a lot of different possibilities. Yeah, it's weird. You know, it's like a sad clown, happy clown, hot, 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 and stuff where you're like, wait a minute, this is that guy that was, you know, wearing black and, and uh, very solemn. And, and uh, you know, now he's dancing around. And, you know, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's, a, it's a stark image. I mean, obviously, the music helps because it's so good that, yeah. you know, it doesn't matter that he did this change. It's just that it's for people who really like pornography and the earlier you know, material, you're like, wait a minute. <laughs> this is jarring. Yeah. So so are they goth? Would you consider this band goth? Or are they a pioneer mm-hmm. of goth rock? I mean, now I would say they're not. Well, Back I mean, then, I'd I think, say they would have been. I think that most definitely. I mean, they have always denied it. They've always said that they're not a goth band and they've sort of separated themselves from that movement. Not They don't denigrate it necessarily, but they don't consider themselves part of it. But, you know, they clearly are. They clearly have been influential in the goth scene. People who are in that lifestyle, that subgenre, you know, that subculture, they, a lot of them are fans of The Cure, revere The Cure. Albums like 17 Seconds, Faith, and Pornography are all considered milestones of the goth sub, subgenre. And, you know, um, just look at the shows. Robert Smith looks like a goth character. I mean, he's, he's created this character for himself. You know, just like David Bowie did with Ziggy Stardust, except Robert Smith created this character that he's stuck with for 40 years. He's it's a goth character. And you look out in the crowd when they play, you know, you've got a lot of people, male and female, dressed, you know, very similar, and it's considered goth. So, you know, they don't really get to make that decision as to whether they're goth or not. That's sort of out of their purview, you know. Once they put out the music, and it's up to others to interpret what it is, you know, and to them anyway. And there's, it's, it's certainly, they are certainly a major player in the golf scene, for sure. titled all that is left to know about the most heartbreakingly excellent rock band the world has ever known that title was was borrowed from Trent Reznor's speech and the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame it was sort of paraphrased from that it was just some um, great great wordplay there but heartbreakingly excellent I would say that the attention to detail in the studio recordings and Robert Smith the, the fans know that if they put something out under the Cure's name it's going to be something that he believes in 100%. And so it's absolutely genuine. It's absolutely, they stand behind everything that they put out. They believe in everything they put out. Now, maybe when years go by and they look back, they are not so fond of certain things. But at the time that they put something out, they're fully behind it, totally you know, emotionally involved in it. That is something that a lot of artists, I don't think you can say. They're putting out products you know, in a lot of cases or, sort of half-assing it. That's something that never happens with Robert Smith and The Cure. They are um, absolutely genuine in everything they do. And I think that's a big part of why they're so well-respected 
on today in particular that people realize that. How is the book laid out? Are you going uh, track by track? Are you going album by album or time period? It's album by album. It's generally chronological. There are 35 chapters. The sort of idea behind the FAQ series that is on Backbeat Books, um, which is where this book is um, being presented, being published, is to have short standalone chapters. So for example, if you wanted to read about distinctions, you just flip to chapter 24 and boom, you have a fully enclosed chapter about that album. And so that's how the book is structured. There's 35 chapters. It goes from the sort of beginning chronologically through the albums. And then within each album chapter, each song has its own little blurb. So every song in the Curious catalog is covered in this book, including B-sides, rarities, everything. Simon Gallup was the basis for 40 years. He's probably the only one that's stuck by. There is a, a, a large array of people that came and went in that band and created some amazing sounds. He says, uh, good luck. And then he tags it, I'm fed up with the betrayal without really explaining yeah. what that is. It's shocking. You know, it was, um, especially the timing, I wasn't able to really address it in the book. It's for the volume two, I guess. But, you know, Robert Smith and Simon Gallup, they've had a very close relationship for 40 plus years. He wasn't the original bassist, but he came in very quickly, you know, very early on in the, in the band's career history but but it has been a tumultuous relationship it has been there have been a lot of issues back and forth over the years Simon Gallup left the band at the end of the pornography tour he and Robert Smith got into a fist fight after a show and he left and was out of the band for you know three or four years until the head on the door album and Robert brought him back there have been times when Simon had to miss shows for various reasons you know health-related reasons. During the Wish Tour, he missed a couple shows. He was late coming into Wild Mood Swings recording. So there have been sort of these blips throughout the years. Last year, you know, before actually, you know, in 2019, when they were doing the stadium tour of Europe, Simon missed two shows. His son actually filled in for him at two of these festival shows. So there's a history, you know, they were, you know, they've had issues where Simon has trouble getting along with some of the band members. You know, he was instrumental in actually Roger O'Donnell, the keyboard player, getting fired after the disintegration tour. He basically gave Robert an ultimatum saying him or me. So Simon has done those sort of things over the years. Specifically, what prompted this? It hasn't been made public. Um, Robert hasn't even commented on it. There has been nothing since that post that Simon did. And then he's, he took it down after that. So who knows? Maybe it'll be resolved. Maybe it'll be smoothed over, it, or maybe he's gone from the band. He's been gone from the band before, so it's, it's really hard to say. I hope that he comes back and they sort of smooth things over. I saw Robert Smith <laughs> get interviewed, and he has that aloofness that, like, Lou Reed and Andy Warhol were able to portray where it's, any question you ask me, you know, I'm going to put you off, and, and I'm allowed to, you know, not get excited about my work, but to act like I'm I'm, I'm the opposite. So yeah. there's very few artists I can think of right now that have the ability to do that, where, you know, it's accepted that if you're going to interview Robert Smith, that he's going to, he's going to diss you in this kind of way. <laughs> but yeah, uh, yeah. it's, it's very yeah. old, it's very old school, arrogant slash genius that you just accept with what what's the reasoning for all that what's what's that all about 
Well, you know, it's it's absolutely true. And he's been a genius at sort of manipulating the press over the years. He's one of the best at it. And, you know, he plays both sides of the, the coin. Um, for example, you know, when Lullaby came out as the first single from Disintegration in, in the UK, um, it hit number five. And Robert was like, oh, gosh, you know, I didn't even know what chart position it was. You know, that's just, it's horrible that my least favorite song on the album is single i didn't even want it to be a single you know it's it's you know it's terrible and then <laughs> when love song became a huge hit in america he did the exact same thing and so he's sort of distancing himself from the success so that he can still maintain his sort of indie cool and yet he's plugging these songs you know he's he loves these songs he's you know years later he talks nothing but good things about them and talks about you know obviously so you know he's just playing sort of both sides of the the, the issue there um, and he's been able to do that throughout his career. You know, people know that he invents bullshit in his interview answers all the time. You have to take it with a grain of salt. He's given multiple different answers to what a particular song means through the years. Maybe some of that is the meaning changes you know, for him. Yeah, he's been able to sort of get his own way with the media. And I think that it just makes him look cooler, honestly. <laughs> I think. <laughs> I agree. I, you know what? It's weird, but I agree with you 100%. I I find like that aloofness like a time period ago where we didn't know too much about artists like David Bowie or Lou Reed. Like now we're saturated with the artists where we know too much about them and they, they tell too much. So the fact that we barely know Robert Smith, what he eats, what he loves, what he does, and he can play that aloofness thing and we're shocked and scared at the same time. It's really- It creates, yeah. it's, it's myth making is what it is. And he does it so well. And we don't know anything about him. And he keeps himself yes. private. And, um, you know, it, it's just, it's part of his persona and the character that he's created. And if, if we punctured that too much with too much information, we'd destroy the myth. And it wouldn't yeah. be nearly as epic. Well, well, let's do the countdown. I thought about this before. I've done countdowns where I do my 10, you do your 10, we do our nine. We bounce back and forth. And I, I find that, a little jarring so i thought i would do my top 10 first and then you can comment on these songs as yep. you see fit if you don't feel like you know commenting that's fine too they'll be your top 10 also the one thing that's okay. beautiful about the cure is that we we shared each other's top 10s and not one song on our top 10 is a duplicate which i think is pretty awesome <laughs> that is awesome my first one is i'm gonna go through 10 it's just lullaby it is from disintegration the video is amazing where he's in bed and spiders are spider webs are coming and spider-man is having me for dinner tonight and uh it was the time period where uh videos um really matched the the performance of the song um they're saying it's yeah. like addiction and depression and sexual assault from his childhood where a lullaby is where you're singing someone to bed but a lot of lullabies have like really scary imagery in it for little kids. And that's kind of where this song is scary imagery. And by the way, go to bed, it's that kind of thing. It's, it's 
it's you know it's just um, spooky and I love the video. That's one of probably my favorite video, and it's just Robert Smith plays it up. He's a good actor, you know. You look at his roles in these videos, you know, he forced himself to do it. He he comes through, you know. Definitely. My number nine is an album track from Pornography, the 1982 album. I was way into the song, the hit off the album called The Hanging Garden. The next song, One Side One, was Siamese Twin. And Mm -hmm. I actually, you know, that was my one-two punch on this album where I couldn't get enough of uh, Siamese Twin and The Hanging Garden combined. And uh, it was the highlights from, from that album. Um, it's a lot denser than most of the stuff that I pick. I'm, I'm more on the early pop stuff. This to me was like, you know, it was obvious that Smashing Pumpkins was listening and other bands oh, yeah. that were in the grunge period because they were picking off sounds and, and, and thoughts that, that were going to appear sooner, sooner than yeah. later. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. It's it's that sort of sinuous, almost sort of, um, you know, Eastern mysticism type of sound, you know. And um, there, you mentioned self-loathing. That song in particular just oozes with self-loathing. Um, it's it's it just does. really intense. Yeah. It does. It's perfect. It's a perfect example for that. Yeah. Uh, okay, so the number eight is Boys Don't Cry. It's from 1980. And we we didn't know in America who the cure were or what they were all about. Uh, back in the 1980s we were getting i mean uh, record stores weren't they weren't flooding the market with cure records or the songs that were coming from europe they were they were flooding us with triumph and Loverboy. and <laughs> yeah yep. so when a kid gets into the cure <laughs> you're you're borrowing a record from someone you're 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 recording it on a cassette they didn't have cds then and you were you passing it around like you know it was you know something amazing and and that was a case with boys don't cry it it really popped up in america when the greatest hits standing on the beach where people were like uh, they were catching up just like the the pest mode they were catching up with the the back catalog it's a really cool song it's it's really herky-jerky but even the lyrics it's a well-written song for a really young band and even then they were tapping into you know romantic love and and uh feeling alienated and alone so boys don't cry rocks for me I classic song it's it's interesting to me you know you mentioned that they didn't that song didn't pop up really for american audiences until the singles compilation and that's true and it was never a hit that song you know it's a classic now and you know they close their shows with it a lot of times the entire stadium is singing along every word to a song that was released 40 years ago that was never a hit and you know 
it just was word of mouth and it just grew, you know, you know, in a very sort of um, natural way. And um, it's a classic. Yeah. Standing on the beach was catching up with Depeche Mode. It was the exact same thing. It caught the the ears and eyes of of people who weren't aware that they were out there. I mean, they were they had a cult following for both bands, but that that album was just a gateway drug into the band. And and uh, I mean, it it was very very successful. Yeah, it was a huge huge breakthrough for them. No doubt about it. The I go to number seven, which is "Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me" from 1987. The album, it's the first song on the album, which is a double album. It's one of the first albums I got on CD, so I was so, so excited to play it. The first song is The Kiss. And to me, that's like an arena rock, alternative rock, like jam that is amazing. I love to hear it loud to this day. To me, it feels like I, I, uh, Smashing Pumpkins were writing down note for note, word for word, everything that was going on because we would get this vibe later with uh, Siamese Dream and Gish the, the Cure were, even though this was more of a commercial record for them it was way ahead of its time and what the, what the sounds that they were providing was kind of shocking to me because i you know i picked up that that was my first album that i got from them and because it was just like heaven but when you put that on and that's the first song it's a bit shocking um you're not really prepared for it i didn't know what to expect but i remember very well thinking oh my gosh this is a little intense you know and i grew to love it yeah yeah it's great the next song on this i've lost count of what number it is but it's love song so this is how great The Cure is, where Disintegration, the third single off this album, the third is Love Song. Uh, it yeah. came out in 1989. Uh, it was a major hit, but if it wasn't for Adele uh, on her 20, uh, like it was the only cover that she did, it sold 31 million and she slowed down the version and it made everyone go, wow, this is like um, a classic love song that, that even though they liked it before, they now that they were able to hear it in a different format i think people are like whoa this is this is a hit i think they even did it on american idol <laughs> You know that that was a brilliant cover. It's it just shows you know how good a song is when it can be done by a lot of different types of artists and still be done successfully in different styles. And it's just a, a perfect perfect pop song. Um, they do it so dour, you know. It's like the lyrics are all upbeat, but it's kind of like there's still some doubt there, you know. This reminded me of a, a vision that I had years ago. You know, uh, remember Starbucks would have put albums out, featured albums like right by the yeah. cash register. Okay, so yeah. Adele, Adele Twenty One was sitting there and you know that that album was 
you know, popular for four or five years. Yeah. That, that album was sitting there at the at Starbucks, and this Asian lady was right in front of me. I was talking to the barista, probably being trying to be witty and fun, and she she drops it on the counter. This Adele album, and we both stop our conversation and we look down on it, and we're like, "You mean you don't have this yet? <laughs> like I, I, everyone in the world has this, and you're uh, four or five years later going to actually buy this album? We thought we thought it was kind of whacked out. We laughed at it. <laughs> so I'm going back to the Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me album from 1987. And here is the fourth single off the album, which is an amazing, like, uh, alternative rock pop song called Hot, Hot, Hot. It yeah, is, I love to this, song. yeah, to this day, it's a groove. And, and, um, the guitar and the beat that to me really feels like, uh, what you need by NXS is very, yeah. very similar. I, I, I'm not a musician, but, uh, <laughs> I, I feel like that is their, their inroad to real pop music and it worked. I mean, it was just an absolutely white hot groove. And, it, you know, it shows they, you know, at their best, in their best lineups, terrific musicianship, careful attention to detail, great production. It's very crisp. It just jumps out of the speakers. You know, it doesn't sound dated at all. It sounds no. like it could have been recorded yesterday. I agree. I'm up to like my fourth here. I'm counting Killing an Arab is not a PC song, obviously. It has that Moroccan guitar, like surfer rock vibe to it. I'm alive, I'm dead, I'm a stranger, killing an Arab. It is, it's a wild ride for like a three and a half minute song. I love it. I know that no one's ever gonna be playing it on radio anymore <laughs> because of the political connotations or just the fact that it just doesn't sound PC anymore, but it's, it's a jam. Staring at the sun. It's a great, yeah. Robert Smith wrote that when he was 15 years old. That was their first single. And, um, you know, it was controversial from the very early days. Um, when they performed it around, you know, their hometown of Crawley. So he had to explain even then why the song is not racist. And it's sort of troubled them throughout the years, especially when it came out on the Standing on a Beach compilation, which is when it got its first sort of wide exposure, you know, to American audiences for sure. Um, but it's a great song. It's very stripped down. You know, it reminds me of a lot of early first singles. If you think about like The Beatles Love Me Do or, yeah, you know, The Police Rocks. It's like it's got that very raw, stripped down, very um, vibey kind of sound to it. It's, it sounds like a first single, you know? I'm going to number three, which is a Kyoto song. Uh, yeah. This is a song from Head on the Door, 1985. <laughs> okay, Alan Smith from high school, shout out to Alan Smith, told me this song's about semen. I believed him <laughs> up until this day. And he told me this lyric. It looks good. It tastes like nothing on earth. It's so smooth. <laughs> It even feels like skin. It tells me how it feels to be new. 
And he pointed that lyrics out and said, that's about semen. And while I'm preparing for this interview, I read the whole lyrics and I said, wow, that has nothing to do with semen. But... <laughs> <laughs> It's a nightmare. It's like a, it's a, it's a vivid nightmare. And, you know, there are sexual connotations in it for, for sure. So, you know, I never thought about that, but that lyric that you quoted definitely could be interpreted that way. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It, well, obviously it hit my subconscious. Uh, I would try to think about who told me that and then <laughs> why that became one of my favorite songs. I don't know if I, there's very few semen songs that I love. Obviously <laughs> this is probably my favorite one. Okay, we're number Probably. two. Yeah. My number two is there was an, a soundtrack album from 1980 called Times Square. I never saw no. the movie, but it's one of those Robert Stigwood <laughs> productions that were overbloated and, and sucked. RSO was into movies, and although they did were successful with Saturday Night Fever and with Grease, they kind of went downhill after that. So Times Square was their, their, their punk album. And if you look at the soundtrack today... It's really awesome. And along with yep. The Cure is on it uh, from their first album. I got into that song from the soundtrack. And I was like, who is this band called The Cure? I need to know who this band is. It really helped me. And as of now, it's it's a total like power punk jam. Yeah, that's a great, great, great early song. And, you know, um, you know, the, the band's, the Cure's manager you know, at the time, Chris Perry, he was also the uh, head of Fiction Records. Um, he signed the band. He wanted that to be the second single following Killing an Arab. Um, they didn't want to go with Boys Don't Cry just yet because they were afraid that, that would pigeonhole them into a more pop vibe. And they thought that Grinding Halt was more edgier and, you know, would be a great single. And so they they put out a promo 12-inch to the DJs, you know, around the, you know, to see sort of what the response would be. And it was a very lukewarm response. But so they ended up shelving the single, but they did put it on that soundtrack. And I'm glad they did because it sort of separates it from the rest of the early material and gives it sort of its own little niche. My number one is never enough which is probably in my top 25 songs of all time it's from the mixed up album which is a really interesting album they were doing remix albums and as of remix albums this is probably one of the better ones uh that that people have done um i don't i can't think of any other artist that that a remix album is so you know really interesting to listen to it's from 1990 um i love everything about this the sonic startup the the growling what 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 he's saying whatever i do is never enough it's 
it's heartfelt, especially in relationships. Yeah. I am a codependent by nature. That means I like to please people. So <laughs> when it yeah. says uh, I'm, it's never enough, it's never enough. It's 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 a mantra that goes through my head. This is a mix that I I feel fits right in Jane's Addiction's Mountain Song or Head Like a Hole by Nine Inch Nails. It's that time period where this song is 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 really perfect for a mix where you just add this right into it yeah yeah and it sounds great it's great production uh mark saunders who um actually wrote the foreword for the book he produced that song and it, it came about from a pearl thompson riff he was just sort of jamming on um the band was that was not even you know the song they were going to record they the song that ended up as the b-side harold and joe you know, Robert was working with Mark Saunders on that sort of electronic thing while the rest of the band was just sort of, you know, twirling, twirling their thumbs in the other room. And so they just started jamming on this riff that Coral Thompson brought in. And Mark Saunders went over to the other side to see what they were doing and heard it and brought in Robert and said, you got to hear this right now. And that's where Never Enough came from. It was born from that moment. And, you know, they just um, they just went, fed off the energy, the sort of restless energy. And it's one of their best rock songs for sure. It's a you know, great choice. My top 10 is over. It's The Cure FAQ. It's a new a book that's coming out with Christian Gerard. It's on 10, 15, this month, it's the Cure FAQ. All that's left to know about the most heartbreakingly excellent rock band the world has ever known. I finished my top 10. It's coming out on, on 10 15. And now it's Christian's turn to do his top 10. I'm going to let you riff on all these. I, I probably won't comment on them. So if you want to start at your 10, and you have right. your if list. You just, I don't have my list. So if you can just name the tune and then I'll I'll just briefly um, explain yeah. on it. Your number 10. A Juniper Crash. A Jupiter Crash um, from the Wild Moon Sweeties album. That's a very underrated album, and, and I love that song in particular. It's very lush, um, acoustic guitar, sort of swirling ballad one of my favorites and that's one of the few songs from that record that the cure still performs live um to this day so it's a, it's a robert smith favorite as well number nine i like cockatoos <laughs> Like Cockatoos, yeah. From Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me. That's another album track. Um, another sort of a lot of acoustic guitar, very swirly and dreamlike, um, sort of a nightmarish imagery. And one of my favorite lyrics by Robert Smith and a great vocal um, 
delivery on that one also. Number eight, Shake Dog Shake. Shake Dog Shake, that's the opening track from the top album. Um, that one, you know, they performed that on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame uh, induction ceremony, even though it was never a single. The drummer on the song, Andy Anderson, had just recently passed away before the Hall of Fame. And so as an homage to him, Robert um, opened with that song. It's a great song. It's it's one of their more incendiary sort of hard rock tracks. And they've they've often used it as a opener for, a, for their shows. They, they, that was an opener for a long time. So it's a great song. Number seven, A Forest. Uh, that's, you know, that's the classic prototypical pure song. Everything that they did after it you know, was built on that song that was their big breakthrough in terms of artistic and commercial um, momentum and it just still sounds amazing number six pictures of you Just such a brilliant song, so emotional. Just the, the 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 interplay between the guitar, the the bass six that Robert is playing with Simon Gallup's bass part. Whenever they perform it live, standing facing each other, just it's it's amazing, and it's a uh, just a really powerful song that uh, that just gets straight to your heart. Number five, once. Once um, is another track from Wild Mood Swings. It's the opening track, and it gets back to sort of what you're talking about with Never Enough. Um, it's the same sort of concept, and he's covered that multiple times in terms of he just can never be satisfied. There's always more that he wants. He wants um, more drugs, more liquor, more sex, more everything. It's just never enough. And Once sort of fits right into that sort of concept, and it's just a, it's just a really powerful song. A lot of it just it's got a great climax it just builds and builds and builds and kind of explodes it's one of, it's a great song number four a pink dream that one is my hidden gem it's it's a b-side actually from the Wild Mood Swings era, and it's one of their best pop songs. It's that sort of driving acoustic pop 
sound that you would think of was just like heaven or in between days um but it's it's never really been heard it was a b-side to one of their lesser successful singles and so it's it's one that i think would fit right nice on their greatest hits album if, if it had ever been given a chance it's, it's just a great song a lot of real nostalgic warm vibe to it number three fascination street <laughs> That was a huge one for me, you know. First new Cure record since I really got into them with Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me in the, in the singles collection. Um, in America, Fascination Street was the first single from Disintegration, um, whereas the rest of the world, it was Lullaby. The American label wanted Fascination Street because they felt that it would go over better um, on modern rock, and they were right. It was a perfect choice. Um, it's just a great song. The bass line is just killer. The way that the instrumentation builds and builds and builds, it's you know it's 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 almost my number one <laughs> yeah it's a great song just like heaven is number two Perfect pop song. The arrangement, just the sort of subtle counter melodies on the keyboard, and then those soaring synths, um, uh, just the guitar up and down, the descending and ascending guitar riffs. And Robert's vocal on this song is probably the best thing he's ever done as far as vocal performance. I mean, it's just, he nailed it. It's a perfect pop song. And um, it's, it's a song that got me into the band, so. It was hard for me not to put it at number one. It's the same deep water as you. It's just a powerful epic. The centerpiece of Disintegration, which is their greatest album. Those two songs back to back, the same deep water as you and Disintegration. That's the core of that record. It's just, it's it's languid, it's slow moving. It builds with the, you know, the sound of the thunder and the lightning and the, the rain. And it's just incredibly poignant and emotional and true. And, you know, that's what The Cure is when you come down to it, true and genuine. And this song, more than any other, it was hard for me to write about. And in fact, the blurb in the book about this song is very short, because for me, it's you just let the music, you just let the song do the talking. That's all you really need to do. And it's 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 fantastic. Christian Gerard, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. I, it's funny, like 
we are Facebook friends, so I, we've never met. <laughs> but yep. uh, your music knowledge and your your historic writing experience makes me want to pick your brain over and over. The fact that you have this passion for the cure and you wrote this awesome book, I applaud you. I really want you to to spell it out and tell people what's the name of the title, where they can get it. It's um it's available. It'll be available on October fifteenth. It's the Cure FAQ. All the stuff to know about the world's most heartbreakingly excellent rock band in history. I probably I probably goofed that. Um, but um, you want to do a take four two? years. Let's do a take two. <laughs> yeah, let me find. Let me find. <laughs> it's, uh, you almost had it. It's the excellent rock band the world has ever known. Yeah, the Cure FAQ, um, the most heartbreaking, all the stuff to know about the most heartbreakingly excellent rock band the world has ever known. Did I get it? <laughs> you did. It's awesome. <laughs> um, it's 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 going to be available on October 15th, Amazon. Um, any online retailer, really, Barnes & Noble, all of the major retailers, you can get it at walmarttarget.com. Um, you know, it's going to be in bookstores, in the music section, and some record stores that sell books books about music will have it um i'm hoping to do a few signings at, at a couple books at a couple record stores most likely and um it's exciting i can't wait for people to actually get it and start you know getting you know feedback on it uh, you know and uh it's it's really exciting I'm, i can't wait for it to come out you have a facebook page or email where people can i'm sure people want to have conversations with you about this yeah i do have a facebook page um, my writer's page, it's, it's Christian Gerard. If you search for it, um, you should be able to pull it up. Um, I am going to update it actually today. I, I still have um, an old um, article sort of on the uh, front of it. I'm going to update it with some pure imagery so people can find it. Um, but yeah, you can reach me there or on Twitter. Um, I should be easy to find there also. Christian Gerard, thank you very much for talking to me today on Something Came From Baltimore. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. I hope this is a gateway drug that we can talk in the future. I want to pick your brain about uh, so many more artists and, and uh, you know, information that you have about music. Yeah, I would love to. Anytime, just let me know. I'm, I'm totally uh, down for it. Thank you for listening to another episode of Something Came From Baltimore. I am your host, Tom Gacker, and it's wonderful to speak with Christian Gerard again. He is a friend of the pod. The book is called The Cure FAQ. All that is left to know about the most heartbreakingly excellent rock and roll band the world has ever known.